0: Hi
1: folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, May the 6th, 2016. That's right, it's Friday, 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 the monster show of the week. The cleanup batter show of the week where we bring out the expert council and I've got a great show for you today with some great stuff by the expert council members. First off, I have uh, a question for Michael and Sue Laprise about how you deal with high school transcripts and college entry for homeschoolers. That's something I think a lot of people, when they think about homeschooling, worry about. Well, how, how's my son or daughter going to get into college? And then I have a, a little story I'll link to that you can read so you know to cover your butt if you do anything with your actual you know state school district. Because, well, I'm going to tell you about a place where a young man did great. Got his home school, got his high school um, tr- you know, transcripts from the school, and then the, uh, the the public schools threw it away. The government schools threw it away, destroyed it. Uh, so I'm going to just add to whatever they say. Make sure you have copies of everything in triplicate, duplicate, and quadruplicate. Okay? Uh, next up, we have a question for uh, plant master Nick Ferguson. I've waited too long to, uh, to start my own plants this year, so I've got to go to the nursery and buy plants. What do I look for? How do I you know, choose my plants? If I can create big, tall plants... Maybe that's not the best thing to do, so Nick will weigh in on that. For Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, we have a question on bee pollen. How do we collect bee pollen, and what are the health benefits? Are they real, or are they imagined? Is it hokum, or is it reality? But the big thing is, how how do you get all the pollen from the bees? Well, Michael will tell us just that. Question for Darby Simpson on raising pastured poultry. Kind of the go-to manual has been uh, Pastured Poultry Profits by uh, Joel Salatin. But most producers find that Joel Salatin's method worked for Joel Salatin on Joel Salatin's farm with Joel Salatin's systems and Joel Salatin's climate, and they make modifications. So the question is, you know, Darby, you're in the Midwest, not Virginia. What would you change if you were writing a new version of that book? pretty high level question. Darby has some great answers on that. We also have from John Pugliano the ins and outs of precious metal ETFs what is an ETF and why would you buy one in the precious metals world and what does it really do how does it really work and how are they best utilized for planning for investments retirements etc. Then we have a question for Gary Collins on the Primal Paleo Lifestyle alternative products to corn and cornbread Not an easy one, really, but Gary will do his best with that one. And then I'm on batting cleanup as usual today. I have one question from someone that wants to know about when you're a traveler and you want to fish when you travel and not like, you know, pack up the car and head down the road, but you're taking that one suitcase that they charge you 50 bucks for, throwing it on an airplane, baggage check, and when you get there, you want everything you need to go fishing. What do you do, and how do you not you know, break the bank to do it right? So I'll end that one today. I'll also be videoing that little snippet for YouTube. Um, with that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1781, because the episode is 1781, and I have three from Alex Shrug today. I have the discovery of Planet 7 and the search for Planet 9. I have standing at the breaking point, the siege of Yorktown, and I have... The Articles of Confederation are ratified. I'm gonna read the breaking point of the siege at Yorktown. After a series of miracles, General Cornwallis surrenders to General Washington at Yorktown. It is such a devastating loss that the British negotiate peace with the USA. Wow, last year Washington was living in his darkest hour. What changed? French troops land at Rhode Island, which allows Washington to deceive the British into thinking he's preparing to attack New York. Thus, the British hesitate to send reinforcements to help Cornwallis in Virginia. French naval warships arrive in Chesapeake Bay to block any escape to sea by Cornwallis. General Green successfully harasses Cornwallis, but Green's army disperses after the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. Lafayette has been shadowing Cornwallis, and with conflicting orders from New York, Cornwallis is stuck in Yorktown. Taking the low ground is a big mistake, but he has his orders. Two other miracles occur. First, the French naval forces are carrying five hundred thousand silver pesos. Washington's troops are given a month's pay, which is a which boosts morale. The next miracle is that Washington's spies have swiped a British code book. This is like knowing the secret baseball signs the base coach is giving to the runners. By interpreting the signals of Cornwallis' troops, the French can block the attempts of Cornwallis to break the siege. Washington begins his bombardment of Yorktown. On October 17, a British officer appears waving a white handkerchief. British reinforcements finally arrive on October twenty fourth. too late. My take by Alex Shrug. The siege of Yorktown was much more complex than I'm making it sound here. Some people want to turn it into a French victory, with Washington being dragged along against his will. Certainly, he could not have won without the French help, and in some respects, Washington was forced to fight at Yorktown because of the French naval decision to show up there. On the other hand, the French naval commander seemed so worried about the British naval squadron coming down on him that it took the force of Washington's will to keep the man focused on the blockade. Lafayette was great and deserves his statue in Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. Overall, if Washington had, been, had hadn't been in command during the siege, we'd still be fighting the war. Also, Cornwallis didn't actually surrender, as it shows in the famous painting. He said a deputy pleading that he was sick and couldn't attend the surrender ceremony. The war didn't end until the treaty was signed on September 3, 1783. But with the British forces defeated at Yorktown, Parliament could not muster the will to continue to fight. They were done. Uh, and in part of this, you see something with warfare. There is no doubt the British could have logistically continued this war and possibly won it but financially they were done. The, the, the empire was spread too thin in too many places, and to lose something so devastatingly this fast, one has to say, I only have so many resources. What is easier and what is better and what is more profitable to hang on to? And um, in this case, the money ran out in many ways. And the money running out caused the morale to run out as well. And... uh that's a big part of it. And again, as I said, uh, General Green, while his army did eventually disperse, did a tremendous amount of damage because they were smart enough to run away and run away and run away and run away and run away. And run away. Um, not far into the future, in 1814, we will again fight with the British for our for our independence once again, honestly. And they will run away from Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. And uh, they'll do that actually after the war ended, but it will still be a resounding victory for Colonel Jackson. That we will see, I'm sure, in a future edition of the history segment. With that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons. But there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's T-S-P-B-I-Z dot to learn more. Uh, Next up, before we get into uh, your first question for our expert council members, just want to remind you guys I did uh, formally start the uh, Granddaddy's Gun Club online yesterday uh, at granddaddysgun.com. We already have people signing up, becoming members, a couple groups set up, some forums set up. And uh, it really is, uh, I, I think, going to be one of the best things that we could do as a community for the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, and for just family tradition and heritage and community in America. So do consider getting over to granddaddysgun.com. I've put a new video up on the front page, a little more explanation on the front page, so you know what to do after you join. And I am still looking for beta team members that know about BuddyPress and WordPress. I have a special group set up for that. Uh, once you join, you can friend me up. If I haven't friended you up already, I've been pretty much friending everybody to get the thing off the ground. Um, and just let me know that you'd like to be part of that beta team, and I'll send you an invite to it because it is a private group. And I'm looking for people specifically that can help make the site look a little better, that know how to maybe manipulate the template or what have you so that uh, we can, we can kind of make it look more like what it is. Uh but as far as functionality I think we're in pretty good shape. I've even figured out some ways to make the site super functional uh to do a lot of things like give groups their own individual blogs and stuff like that down the road if that works out and it's actually pretty easy to do. WordPress is an amazing amazing technology. Those of you looking to start websites I highly encourage you to consider WordPress as your platform. All right, with that let's get into our first question today. Um this question comes from uh doesn't say, from Lisa she wants to know about when you're homeschooling uh, and you're getting your kids up into that kind of that high school age where they're going to quote-unquote graduate, you know, and they need to have a high school transcript to do certain things or get into college and, you know, how does GED play into this. So with that, uh, let's hear from our experts on this subject, Michael and Sue LaPrize. Take it away, guys.
2: This is Michael and Sue Lapreze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. For the expert council. Thanks again, Jack, for encouraging us to help people think about homeschooling. Here's today's question from Lisa from Oklahoma, who's been homeschooling seven years with their oldest now in high school. She wants to know what to do about a transcript and diploma, a GED, and what problems might homeschool kids encounter after finishing high school. We'll tackle the easiest first. Should you have your kid get a GED? Ask yourself why. Why? Why, after investing all those years in homeschooling, where you know exactly where your young person is academically and ready for work, would you go back to a seriously goofy government test for their seal of approval? The general education development test is just the government's way of tracking people who didn't graduate from high school, and there is the stigma of, you couldn't graduate from high school, so you got your GED. Don't worry about a GED. You've done way better than that.
3: So let's make a clear distinction between what it takes to graduate from a government high school and what it takes to get into a government college. First, check with your local state homeschooling regulations or move to Texas so you don't end up in trouble. Um, I had an argument with a sibling that worked for the government schools where she was telling me you couldn't get into college without two years of a foreign language. This after telling her that my 15 year old son was already going to the local community college with only two years of homeschool high school and no foreign language. She told me he couldn't, but he was. That's because the rules about what it takes to graduate from high school are different than what it takes to get into college. All it takes to get into college is money, either yours or someone else's. But it's that simple. If you are under the graduation age of 18, you can get into college at any age as long as you pass the placement test at the community college. A family of an 8-year-old won that battle years ago. You may have noticed 11-year-olds graduating with multiple degrees and wonder, how did they get in? Well, they passed the test and paid the money. So here's the hilarious story of our 15-year-old getting into the local community college first, he had to pass a test for English and math at the college level, which he did. I asked the counselor if he would still have been able to go if he was close or hadn't quite passed. The counselor told me no, not at 15. Really? How old do you have to be to get into college without being able to pass the placement tests for English and math? The counselor said 18. So of course I had to ask exactly how much math would I need to know by 18 to get into the community college. He said they started remedial classes at the third grade level. Here's when I began to really enjoy my homeschool journey more, when I got home and told Michael that I could get everyone to third grade by 18. How's that for college prep?
2: Recently we were speaking to two community college math professors about this subject, and we asked how a student could pass the Texas State exit test for high school, but not be able to test into college math class. They both shook their heads and didn't want to talk about the craziness they see. According to the Houston Chronicle, 64% of high school graduates who went to college were taking remedial courses. Homeschoolers need to quit worrying about the grade level, and just like Jack is asking you to call them government schools, if you homeschool, teach your kids to stop giving people a grade level and instead Say how old they are, and have them just start talking about something interesting they're doing to throw people off of the grade concept. It doesn't translate to the real world. How many of you ask your doctor what grade he's in? Grade levels focus us on the box someone is sitting and waiting in, and not who they are or what they enjoy or can actually do. Everyone is ready for college once they reach 18.
3: Now, if college is a goal your child has because the career or opportunity they wish to pursue can only be accomplished with that expense, be prepared to play some games. If you live in a homeschooling and freedom state like Texas, where you haven't had to play any reindeer games with the government up until then, be prepared. I spent three weeks totally consumed with my son's high school transcript, and when I went to turn it in to the community college, the lady behind the counter said, It needs to be notarized. What? You need me to have the paper transcript I just wrote, notarized by a stranger, for $8, so you know that I wrote it. She just looked at me like I was stupid for not getting it. I felt like Abbott and who's on first. Then, when I got the transcript notarized and sat down with my son and the counselor, the counselor looked at the transcript for two seconds, literally put it in a drawer and very carefully went over the test results. And that, boys and girls, is what it takes to get you into college when you aren't 18. A good test score and money. Our local community college does offer classes now to homeschoolers that are for homeschoolers only to keep the kids safe and have the topics that are more relevant to their age level. At 15, our son's first college writing assignment was on having his driver's license, which he didn't have. So if college is the way your kid wants to go, start looking and asking questions as soon as possible. There may even be a local homeschool parent who has already done all the research in your area, and you can learn the ropes from them. There are also plenty of websites that have transcripts and diplomas you can print on nice paper on your own computer.
2: When it comes to transitioning from childhood to adulthood, the best thing to do is teach your kids to work. Our culture seems to be allergic to kids growing up, and we're doing our best to create an entitled, pampered 30-year-old. Teach your kids to work hard, show up on time, and be nice. This will ensure a productive future far more than any classroom. Here's the rundown on our kids. Our oldest started college at 15, got his 30 hours in, and then joined the Air Force. Went back to college a bit after the Air Force, but didn't find a degree that suited his goals. He works in construction and owns seven rental properties. Our next daughter didn't want to finish high school or go to college, but her senior year, she was working two jobs. She's been in construction the last three years, which suits her personality, and was thinking she needed to go back to school, but went and talked to her boss about moving up, and he was thrilled, and said a small company like this will be better for her to be successful, and it won't require going to college, but just working hard. Our third child was the only one who did the official four years of homeschool high school, because she just loved the process and being around her friends. She currently works at a high-end daycare and is fixing to get married in June, have babies, and be a an homeschool adventure mom. Ironically, our fourth kid does IT work for the local government school district and is consistently getting raises by earning certifications they want him to get. He started his own nonprofit to refurbish computers and sell at costs or give away to underprivileged people who need some technology. Our 16-year-old works at the local Pond and Garden Center, which is owned by a homeschool family, and he's learning how to build ponds and set up pumps, along with a lot of permaculture here at home. We've had him for six years, and it's been a struggle getting him to love to work, which he's achieved. So now we're working on helping him discover his own dreams and passions for his future. He printed off business cards and does work for the neighbors. He'll be doing another year of homeschool high school, then he'll be free to pursue his passions or go to college, since it's paid for by way of being in the faucet system for so
4: long.
3: If you actually do have to make a high school transcript, be sure to count everything and give lots of credit hours to the cooler stuff you've done. We counted some of the following things in our transcripts. Our BSA adventuring crew, I gave everyone three credit hours per semester as leadership training. We literally built our own house, so I gave them three credit hours a semester for engineering. I gave credit hours for their jobs, since many high schools offer work-study programs, so did I. Playing in the band at church, three credit hours of music, and so on. We print up a diploma on really pretty paper and sign and date it. I actually make a couple of copies, so I have one to give each kid, and some I save, which, I can't remember where I save them now. Honestly, these are foolish pieces of paper that are just marking a passage of time, rather than any of the truly significant events in our kids' lives. Also, only one kid wanted an official graduation ceremony with some friends. One chose a party, and the other two were busy living their lives.
2: We left out kids six and seven. Our two youngest are eight and nine, and they're just living the daily adventure of discovery and enjoying the world around them in far greater freedom than the first five. So once your kids graduate, there, there aren't going to be homeschool versus government school problems. They're going to encounter, but life decisions to make for themselves. Do they know how to work hard? Show up on time? Do they love learning new things? Can they work with others, and do they reflect a happy, cheerful disposition? Those are the important things you're going to teach them in life.
3: If you're considering homeschooling and you're wondering, how would I teach something complicated to my kids? Here's a line that is really helpful in connecting real learning to real life. From Sandra Dodd's unschooling site, she says, People will say, how will they learn algebra in the real world? Is there algebra in the real world? If not, why should it be learned? If so, why should it be separated artificially from its actual uses? Why should always be the question that comes before what and how? Why would I need a GED? Why write a transcript? Why go to college? Answering these first before you start working on what and how will simplify your life and that of your child.
2: Sue and I love to learn. Our adult children love to learn. It's part of who we are. What we'd like to leave you with is this, the most important goal in educating your children is teaching them to learn to love learning. So think about how you can best accomplish this for each individual child. If you have any additional questions or comments, please leave them in the show notes or visit us at HaloBySue.com.
3: Thanks again, Jack, for this great opportunity, and I hope you all go out and have an adventure. Remember, when you're designing the life you'd love to live, filled with the joy of learning, the bell never rings. This has been Michael and Sue Lapreze from HaloBySue.com, wishing you many great adventures. All right, the only thing I
1: have to add to that is, you know, it is different in every state, and recently um, there was a report out that I put on Facebook where a young man that had gone through everything to get his high school transcript in a state, I believe it's like Michigan or Wisconsin or somewhere up in that north central area, um, had done so, and the school keeps the records, right? Like, so it's a lot more strict than it is in Texas, So he goes to this thing, and there's an apprenticeship program, and he wants to apply for this state-approved apprenticeship program, and they say, "Well, you need to have a high school transcript." He says, "Well, I have one. You guys are the ones that did it." And they go back to the school, and the school threw it away, destroyed it. Um, Anything like that, makes sure you have, you know, quadruplicate, uh, you know, notarized whatever. And you imagine the 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 idiocy of a school. We have to have the the transcript notarized. Okay, well, I just wrote it. It's my. But I have to have it notarized. Like you're stupid, and then never look at it again. Just put it in a drawer and boom, and that's it. Don't even care. Just it has to be. This is how bureaucrats think, and this is you know the 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 reindeer came, as Sue put it. You have to jump through sometimes. I'd like to point something out out to before we go to the next question. So, some of you might be in positions where you're never going to homeschool because you can't, or you have You have no children, and you're not going to, or your children are adult children. Where, and, you know, and you're know you not so involved with your grandchildren that you would make that decision or, or what have you and might think, like, this doesn't apply to me. But it does because the mental programming that only the government can run schools runs deep through our country. And every time you hear about all of these alternatives and these amazing things, it helps with the decoupling from the programming. And remember, that's not an insult when I say you're programmed. We're all programmed. All of us that grew up in this modern age have been programmed by society to, to just accept certain things, and it's a long process of decoupling. So that's part of the decoupling as well, for those of you that even don't think it's directly uh, attributed to you guys. So next up, I have a question for Nick Ferguson on choosing plants from a nursery. Go ahead, Nick, let's hear about that.
5: Hey there, TSP listeners. Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty here answering another question. And this one on selecting seedlings at a nursery. So, specifically talking about tomatoes, I know you said that you liked, uh, you tend to want to pick out the taller ones of all your plants. But with tomatoes, I really like planting them as deeply as possible. And, the reason why is that tomatoes will root all along the stalk. Now some people say that they root from the hairs and that's not really true. They just form roots all along the stalk. It's not the hairs that form roots, but if you bury them and just leave a little, you know, an inch or two of the the top tip of the tomato plant sticking out of the ground and you bury it as deep as you can, while still leaving a little bit sticking out of the ground, it will root all along that stalk in the ground. So you can use a dibble stick, you can use a drill, you can use um, anything, a shovel to get down deep enough. Plant it in there, put some manure around it, put some fertilizer around it, something, compost, anything like that, and it will root quick. It'll grow fast. And it'll do great that way. Getting it down deeper is going to get it a little bit more drought tolerant. So I think that's always a fantastic thing to do. So if you're picking out tomatoes, pick nice deep green ones that are nice and tall. For everything else, peppers, everything else, you want shorter, stockier, dark green plants, no discoloration, um, check underneath the leaves, make sure that they're not infested with aphids, things like that. But generally, you know, like I said, you're looking for short, stocky, dark green, healthy-looking plants. Now, if I'm buying plants from a nursery, then what I'm actually going to be looking for are kind of the smaller ones, earlier in the season. But like you said, this is late season. Everything has been started for a couple months now. So they're all going to be pretty mature. Some of the peppers right now in the nursery flats are actually going to start flowering. So um, a lot of those things are already ready to go. They're already kind of old. So it's a little too late to be looking for the younger plants that aren't going to be as root bound. So when you're getting some of these uh, things like peppers, You'll probably want to open the roots up just a little bit. Now, anything that's a cucurbit, so cucumbers, melons, um, pumpkins, anything like that, squashes, they do not like to have their their roots messed with very much. So be very careful about when you're pulling them out um, because they don't take well to transplanting. So be careful about that. And don't even bother trying to buy corn in a flat from a nursery. Corn is not a good thing to buy <laughs> pre-started. Corn needs to be direct sown. I hope that helps. Um, if you have some more questions, head on over to uh, the Homegrown Liberty Facebook group and post your question there, and I'll be able to answer your question. Or you can email me directly, nick at homegrownliberty.com. Thanks for the great questions, guys. Um, for more info about me, check out homegrownliberty.com. I have a podcast called Homegrown Liberty um, that comes out every Friday. We cover a lot of really cool stuff, and there is a great new episode just out covering cover crop recipes. So you might want to check that out. Thanks, guys. I'll talk to you all later.
1: I'll have one addition here with uh, pepper plants. Don't be afraid to prune pepper plants aggressively, especially if they're tall and spindly. I've never had the guts ever to just take a pepper plant, like a tall spindly pepper plant, put it in a in a good garden. I wouldn't try the same where it's gonna be stressed, but it just prune it to the ground. Like just there's nothing left but the roots and a little bit of stem sticking out. Uh, in fact, I would have told you it was a bad idea. I don't know that it's a good idea yet, but I put several pepper plants into my uh, my wicking beds, and we st- the cats had not actually gotten into full-on rat hunting mode yet, and a rat, uh, several nights in a row, took several of my pepper plants completely to the ground, just cut them off. They are now a couple inches high, and they are bushy. And they, I, I think by the time they catch up with the non-ratted plants, they may they may outperform them. I mean, these things are just looking robust. So if you have a really tall spindly uh, pepper plant, especially one that's maybe starting to flower and it really probably shouldn't because it's going to like have one pepper. Like, Don't be afraid to prune off parts of that plant And uh, make sure when you're putting these kinds of plants in that you're transplanting that you give them some real heavy shade for the first couple days to kind of heal them in. It would be a little addition there. Also, it is late to plant things like peppers and tomatoes and stuff in a lot of the country. But like what Nick was talking about, cucurbits, melons, uh, squashes, and stuff like that, most places it's still like it's prime time to plant that stuff, direct seed into the ground. So don't think you always have to buy plants. Next question from Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer. Uh, What's the deal with bee pollen? Does it really do all the wonderful things they say it does? And how do you beekeepers get it away from the bees?
6: This is Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, from a bee-friendly company here out of Cheyenne, Wyoming, taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and mead making here on the Survival Podcast. This question comes from Jason out of Pennsylvania. He asked, I've seen bee pollen sold in health food stores. I believe some have stated that it's helpful in the remediation of allergies and others in culinary use. How is this collected from the bees? Is it truly beneficial? Are there any potential risks or concerns to be aware of? And what is the shelf life? Well, Jason, bee pollen is used to enhance energy, vitality memory, and performance, and then sometimes even reduces allergies. It's considered a superfood because it contains proteins and enrich vitamins and minerals and uh, psychochemicals in the plants, and uh, this is what gives the plants their true color. They uh, Are they truly beneficial, you ask? Well, carbohydrates, proteins, and B vitamins can help you keep going all day, and enhance stamina and fighting off fatigue. And we all know bees work themselves to death. That's why they're called busy as a bee. Bee pollen contains high quali- quality and quantities of antioxidants that have an anti-inflammatory effect on tissues of the lungs, preventing the onset of asthma. Dr. Leo Conway, medical doctor of Denver, Colorado, reported that 94% of his patients were completely free of allergy symptoms once treated with oral feedings of pollen. Everything from asthma to allergies to sinus problems were cleared, confirming that bee pollen is wonderfully affected against, effective against the wide range of respiratory diseases. There are so many other reasons to eat pollen. Uh... But from a standpoint of allergies, it is a great benefit. So how do we get the pollen from the bees? There are two major ways of getting pollen from bees. One is to punch out uh, the pollen out of the comb. As the bee fill up the comb with pollen, you get like a 5.5 millimeter tube packed with hard pollen. You'll have to open the hive, pulling out the frames, locating the cells that are packed with pollen. You'll take a three-eight-inch uh, copper tube and press it around the pollen cells. Now you'll get some wax kind of pushed up in there, but the copper tube will fill up with pollen. So you'll have like this long copper straw just full of pollen that you can take and then push out. And you can get uh, tons of pollen this way, and it's packed in. Very bitter. I want you to remember that pollen is very bitter. Very bitter. Uh, the other way to get pollen is to install a pollen trap. Uh, there's many kinds that uh, you place on a hive. You can place them in trays on the bottom. There's front-door pollen traps sold out of Turkey and India. You can get those relatively cheap. Uh, but you can get them from Man Lake and other companies that sell bee products. What it does is the traps knock off the pollen off the bees as they come into hive. There's holes that are in the trap that are made for the bees to come into the hive, but the pollen on their legs is knocked down into a collection tray for you to harvest. If you're doing this, remember you're uh, taking away from the brood building. That uh, They mix honey with the pollen to make what they call bee bread, and this is what the bees eat to produce lots of, lots of larva. This is how they feed the larva so they can uh, get a quick growth to come out. So you also need to check these traps if you're going to get them about every four to five days so the pollen is fresh. Now, you can eat it right away. That will help you. Uh, Most people dehydrate it, and that's like what you're probably seeing in the health food stores or culinary departments for cooking in. But it will lose its potency uh, by heating it. Um, You can vacuum seal it if you get fresh pollen, uh, like in your traps. And it will freeze up to a year or two by vacuum sealing it and putting it in the freezer before it really goes bad and loses its uh, potency and kind of gets kind of gooey. Now, as everything, taking it uh, in large amounts is, is harmful. So if you're overindulging in it, of course it's not going to be good for you. Um, if you have, have high allergic reactions to things and food products, you should see what kind of pollen you have. It's like um if you have allergic reactions to peanuts, well, if you're getting peanut pollen, um, you're going to have an allergic, allergic, allergic reaction to it. That is something to kind of always look out for. I have not personally ever seen anyone hurt from pollen, but that does not say it, w- it will not happen. In fact, uh, many people get local honey that is raw for the high pollen counts for the beneficial pollen uh, for allergy and symptoms. So they don't have to pay high dollar costs of jars of pollen. So I think that we've covered your question on pollen from how to get it, what the benefits are from it, how to store it, and if there are already health problems of using it. Now remember, I don't comply, I do not claim to be a doctor. So if you're using it for medical reasons, always consult a doctor first. Try in small amounts like uh, raw honey. And if you like it, get uh, pollen from a beekeeper you respect and who collects it. Uh, and then moving to more amounts that are working for you. I think this is the best way to try to get into pollen. I do use some pollen in my needs for natural fermentation. Like uh, I will juice apples for the apple juice. I will use the honey from the apples. And then I'll use the pollen from the holly, uh, apple pollination. And all three of those will make a natural fermentation of a honey mead with an apple background to it, so I, you know, you can use it for culinary purposes, like you said, and I use it for open fermentation. So pollen has a lot of benefits. Uh, I, I wish that more people would probably indulge in raw honey. Remember, sometimes the cheaper the honey, the more it's been either refined or processed. And some of my jars of honey, you'll see pollen, propolis wax and stuff kind of floating in it because we never really claim for our honey to be one certain specific kind it's all wildflower we try to get as many blended varieties of honey in our spins so you can get the natural pollens in them to help fight those allergic reactions hey i am michael jordan the bee whisperer telling you get your honey from a beekeeper respect buy it from a cottage industry and as always man help your fellow man for one day, you may need help, too.
1: Great stuff, as always, from Michael. And I am a huge believer in the power of bees in general. Honey, uh, raw honey specifically, uh, pollen uh, in general, uh, I, I find to be quite useful. And I make it part of my diet. And, uh, you know, all I can say is there's people that say that the whole concept of, you know, using local pollen, uh, local bee pollen, local honey... Raw honey, uh, having any effect on allergies is all in people's heads or whatever. All I can say is that I know a lot of people who have used it and feel that it's helped them. And in the end, I think that's what's important. Um, I I really do. And as a person that's never been really hyperallergenic to anything, but when I lived in Florida as a kid, um, there was something in the spring that just... I mean just completely blocked my airways for about two months of the year and the rest of the year I was fine. And when I think about people that live like that all the time or a lot of the year, I I, I realize that anything that would help them is is worth giving a shot. So my view is it's not gonna hurt. Uh and with some caveats like Michael said, like if you're allergic to peanuts and you're getting you know, local honey that you know, bees that are, you know, pollinating peanuts or something, that could be an issue I imagine. But other than that why not try the things that won't hurt you before you try the things that can hurt you? And just listen to any pharmaceutical advertisements list of side effects at the end and realize that they all can hurt you uh, to varying degrees. Next up, I have a question for Darby Simpson on pastured poultry. What, if anything, would you change if you were rewriting uh, Joel Salatin's Pastured Poultry Profits, Darby.
7: Hello there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I have a question from Stephen, and uh, he wants to know if I were editing a new edition of Pastured Poultry Profits by Joel Salatin, what would I change or update? And he is especially interested in what I would do to make it Midwest specific. Um, Stevens heard me uh, talk about uh, pastured poultry profits on both TSP and Permaculture Voices. And uh, I, I do have a, a large debt of gratitude to that book. It's what we use to get started here on our farm. Uh, but he's heard me mention that it needs to be taken as a template and as inspiration uh, not as an exact guidebook and that you, you, you need to change it to, you know, fit a particular, uh, region or, or piece of land. So, uh, he and his wife are planning on running a couple batches of broilers this summer and they're in a really similar climate to us. They're in Southern Michigan. We're in central Indiana. So he's just kind of wanting to know, you know, what, what would I update and change? And, uh, what, you know, what further points would I add on top of, of what's given in that book? So Stephen, thanks for sending that question in. Um, i got i gotta tell you I never thought you know someone would ask me if I was you know writing a new edition of of pastured poultry profits what I would change um certainly it's a classic and anyone who's gonna do pastured poultry I would encourage them to read it there's a lot of great value in that book um i guess the the big things that that we found uh particularly for the midwest uh number one the chicken pens. and i I've talked a lot about this uh you know being a task oriented Engineer by trade, when I, you know, read that book, I, I took that and just, you know, I did everything verbatim. I followed it step by step. It was, it was, you know, a, a how-to manual for me. And the chicken pens that Joel uses, while they work great for him, they, they just don't work here. They just don't have enough ventilation. We found them, uh, you know, while everything has pros and cons, we we just found them to be super, super efficient at killing chickens. And um, I don't say that to be mean. It's just what we experienced. Um, the other thing that I don't like about them is that they are a one-use piece of equipment. You can raise pastured broilers in them. Uh, you could also do pastured meat ducks. Um, <clears throat> in a pinch, you could put a nesting box in it and use it for layers. But really, that's about it. So... What we did is we went to a hoop house, and it's got a much better ventilation. It's a whole lot easier to get in and out of. It's easier to load the birds out of, in my opinion. Um, and we just don't have the problems with death that we did in those flat salads and pins. Um, they do stand up really well to wind, uh, you know, and they're, they're pretty easy and inexpensive to build. But, you know, unless you've got a really, really cool low uh, humidity climate, you're probably going to run into the same issues that we did and, and have to tinker with them and mess with them to get, get them to work. So um, the other thing about the hoop house is that, you know, we raise broilers in it, uh, ducks, laying hens easily. We raise our turkeys in those. We've used them to feral pigs. We've used them uh, as cattle shelters in a pinch when there was a blizzard coming in. So they've really got a lot more uses than uh, just doing pasture broilers. Uh, the other thing I probably would mention is that, you know, Joel is really, really big on doing all of your own butchering. To that, I say to each his own, if that's what you want to do. We, we did our first batch of 50 broilers. We butchered them ourselves. Uh, we were thankful for the experience. We were also quite happy to run out and hire a butcher uh, to professionally butcher all of our chicken for us so that we could pursue that as an enterprise. It is a lot of work. And it's not free. There's a big misconception that, you know, you're going to save all kinds of money um, if you butcher your own chickens. And that's just not the case. Uh, And and also, it depends on what state you're in. You know, uh, when we started, uh, you you could only butcher up to 1,000 birds on farm per year. And you weren't allowed to sell them off farm. They had to be sold fresh the day they were processed. In Joel's case, you know, he's been able to do 20,000 broilers on farm uh, you know, since, since the 1990s and, uh, and sell them wherever. So it really varies by state. That's just something I would point out. And then the marketing, um, you know, and this is really based more on, uh, you know, geography and where you're at within a region, but, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it, the book's older. So the marketing strategy is a, a, a bit antiquated. It needs to be updated for web-based options. Joel's also not a fan of farmer's markets. I'm a huge fan of farmer's markets. I have a really large unfair advantage where we're located geographically. We're halfway between Indianapolis and Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, we're 45 minutes and 35 minutes away from two huge markets that have got a really good local food culture. So I think that's something you have to kind of consider instead of just, you know, doing whole birds to people who will come to your farm or to restaurants. I think there are many, many other options. Um, and then with that, you know, the cut up, uh, packages that we sell at a premium is something that the butcher does for us. And if you're again, butchering yourself, it just adds a whole lot more labor um, and you you need a really good vacuum sealer and a really good vacuum sealer for professional packages can be, you know, five to 10,000 bucks. So they're not cheap. Um, I, I, you know, it's just something you would have to consider and, you know, to each his own. It just all depends on what you want to do and what you want to accomplish. You know, pastured poultry is something that is a, a great enterprise for us, but we just didn't want to make the investment into the equipment. And uh, a building and space and all that stuff for something that honestly we didn't enjoy doing. And uh, when we we have a really good option that's not too far from our farm that does it very reasonably for us. So those are my big thoughts. Um, it's interesting, Stephen, that you asked this question. Uh, I'll let everybody know that uh, um, a few months ago, Diego Footer uh, of Permaculture Voices. Asked me if I'd be interested in doing a weekly podcast similar to the uh, Urban Farmer with Curtis Stone, and we we've begun recording that, and the first three episodes are out, and episode three of the Grassfed Life uh, is a nuts and bolts episode on production of pasture poultry and I actually cover a lot of the same stuff in great detail on that podcast so I would encourage you to listen to that and then also episode five which we just recorded and it's going to be out in a couple of weeks really gets into the butchering and the marketing aspect of things so I think if you're interested in this and you're thinking about doing it as a business would really encourage you to to go out and listen to that that podcast at least those two episodes and uh see what you think and um I, th- I think you'll find it uh, worthwhile. There's a lot of a lot of good information um, that I expound upon in an hour-long podcast that I, I can't really cover here. So, anyway, Stephen, those are my thoughts. Um, hopefully, you find them useful, and hopefully, you'll go out and uh, and check out Grassfed Life on PermacultureVoices.com and uh, send us some feedback. Let us know what you think, and let me know if that gives you a better idea about. Um, you know, my my issues with with the book, Pasture Poultry Profits. And that my issues were small. Honestly, it's a great book. I think it's a great template, a great guideline. I just think it needs to be tweaked uh, for your farm and your region. So anyway, if you'd like to learn more about me, you can check me out at darbysimpson.com. There's a ton of free blog articles out there. I also do offer one-on-one consulting if you're interested in that. Uh, wanted to make mention uh, while we're talking about pasture poultry that we have a workshop coming up on our farm. It's going to be held on June 10th and 11th, and it is on producing and butchering poultry, pork, and rabbit. Uh, I'm going to be teaching along with several other guest instructors that you've probably heard of. Uh, Patrick Roman from MT Knives will be here. Greg Burns from Nature's Image Farm in Ohio. Rob Kaiser from Deliberate Living Systems. Jesse Techmeyer from uh, Perm Ethos is going to be here. Uh, there's a blog post out at DarbySimpson.com that, that covers everything we're going to be doing uh covers the whole itinerary But just to kind of give you an idea of what you'll get uh, There's 8 hours of classroom instruction There's 8 hours of on-farm instruction That includes an exhaustive tour of the farm Where you get to see everything up close and personal Including our pasture poultry pens And our brooder and how we do all that stuff uh, You get a spiral bound notebook Of all the presentations given From all the instructors With tons of how-to photos And that's something you get to take home You'll have it during the workshop to, to take notes in You can put it on your bookshelf and, and reference it later uh, we'll also be providing all three meals as well as snacks and drinks for um, Friday and Saturday with really good food. I mean, good food. All the meats come from our farm. Uh, all the vegetables are, are local. Chemical-free are prepared by a good friend of mine who's a professional chef here in Indianapolis. Uh, the food alone is worth a ton. And then, of course, we're going to have a, a couple of nights where we just hang out around the campfire and get to know one another and it's all going to be capped off with a, a barter blanket session on Saturday night, uh, that's going to be hosted by Rob Kaiser. So we're looking forward to it. Uh, we're going to have a great time. Anybody that's interested, uh, you can, you can again go out to DarbySimpson.com. There's a blog article out there with a link to the itinerary page. Uh, the cost for this guys is only 375 bucks or uh, a couple. You can sign up and get a discount for 725 bucks. Um, we uh, we are about 20% sold out as of April 21st. So if you're interested in coming, get out there, check it out, and get signed up. Uh, I hope to meet a lot of you here in person this June. As always, thanks for sending in these questions. Please send in more. I love answering them. I love hearing from you guys. And uh, go out and check out Grassfed Life, guys. Uh, get, give it a listen. See what you think. Everyone, have a wonderful weekend and take care. Bye-bye.
1: I'll add to that, as I mentioned, that um – Darby's been doing some podcasts with uh, Diego, uh, Grass-Fed Life, and I do have a link to that in the uh, show notes today. Uh, Next up, I have a question for uh, investment advisor John Pugliano. Basically, the question is, uh, what indicators should I watch for to determine investing in a precious metal ETF, if that's a good strategy? It seems like with gold rising and silver yet to catch up, there could be a good opportunity to trade in precious metal. What signs would indicate this is a good idea? Thanks, Mike in Detroit. And with that, hey, John, man, take it away.
8: Hello, TSP listeners. Mike in Detroit has a question about what should he watch for if he wants to invest in precious metals in an exchange traded fund? You know, what might be a good strategy and what signs should he look for to know if that's a good idea? Well, Mike, I'll be happy to share some of my thoughts and opinions and give you some of the tips that I use when I use an exchange-traded fund to purchase something like gold or silver. I do want to make one slight distinction here. You did ask about investing in precious metals through ETFs. And my personal opinion on that is that when I use an ETF to buy something like gold, I don't consider that an investment, even though it's in something that's part of my long-term investment retirement strategy and it may be in my Roth IRA account. I look at that as more of a short or a near-term trade. It's more of a trade that I'm going to take a position in over a period of, say, uh, days or weeks or months, but most likely not years, not something that I would do with a true, you know, quote, investment. But having said that, I do think that using exchange-traded funds to trade in precious metals is something that can be profitable for you if you know what you're doing, and then obviously, like any type of a trade, the timing has to be on your side. Now, a couple distinctions about gold and silver. Both of these precious metals do very well as a hedge against inflation. So the primary thing that you want to watch in the economy is for fear of future inflation. If investors or people on Wall Street believe that inflation is going to occur, then generally both of these metals move up in value and perform very well. As I say, they're a very good protection or hedge against inflation. Now, while both of these metals do well as a hedge against inflation, what you have to remember is that silver also has a great deal of industrial applications. Now, gold has some, too, but when it comes to actual utilitarian-type uses, silver far outperforms gold. So, for our purposes, let's think of gold as primarily used as a financial tool and a hedge against inflation, while silver has that aspect, but then it also has a great deal of industrial applications. But they don't always perform at the same rate. And I'll give you an example. So when we came through the last financial crisis in early 2009, both gold and silver performed very well because there was fear about further instability in the financial markets and also the fear of inflation. So that helped the trade aspect of both gold and silver, and gold outperformed in that circumstance because at the same time there was a slowdown in the general economy and there was not much industrial activity taking place, so things like silver and copper weren't in as high of a demand. So in an example like that, gold outperformed silver. Now as the recovery continued and we got towards the end of 2010, maybe the beginning of 2011, Silver started to drastically outperform gold, and that's because it was evident that the economy was heating up, particularly in emerging markets and markets outside the United States that were relying a great deal on industrial output, places like China. So while there was still a fear that we may be seeing inflation because of all the money that was being printed, that helped rise both gold and silver from the trade or the financial aspect, But silver outperformed gold because it started to have a great deal of demand for other industrial applications. Well, as you're probably aware, both of those metals peaked out in 2011, and we've been in a decline ever since. Now, both metals seem to have pretty much bottomed out by the end of the year, or certainly by the beginning of 2016. We saw more fears creep in that inflation may in fact be coming back. Both gold and silver have outperformed the market, have performed extremely well so far year-to-date. As I record this episode, gold is up something like 17%, 18% year-to-date, and silver's up even more. Silver's up about 22 23%. Now, to a lot of people, it doesn't feel like silver is performing that well, but that's because on a relative basis, it had dropped so much below gold over the past, say, 18 months or two years. But really, just over the last month or so, while gold has started to stabilize, silver has risen over 7%. Right now, my opinion is that silver will outperform gold. But remember, we still need those two factors to take place. We need the fear of inflation, and we need improving industrial output. For example, if things start to get better in China, if we start to see global trade pick up, then my money is on silver I think at that point it will close the gap and catch up on its underperformance in relation to gold over the past, say, five years or so. What I do want to emphasize, though, is that for both gold and silver to advance from here, we definitely need that fear of inflation. I'm not convinced at this point that we are going to see inflation. I still see a great deal of problems in the economy that could lean more towards deflation rather than inflation. Keep your eyes on the price of oil. It's stabilized. It's doing very well right now, around 40-some dollars a barrel. If that starts to drop back down into the 30s and if we continue to see a slowdown in China, then I think in that case the scales are tilted towards deflation because there's a great deal of overcapacity and underutilization of factories and different types of industrial output in China that just haven't worked their way through the system yet. Now, of course, if things do improve in China, if we start to see global GDP improving, that's going to help inflation. That's going to help the price of both gold and silver. Again, in particular, I think it's going to help silver more than gold. And then, of course, if the Federal Reserve steps in with another form of stimulus, if they go on to have quantitative easing for or whatever they call the next program, well, again, that will help both gold and silver. Now, Mike, when I personally invest in either gold or silver through an ETF, In addition to looking at the general economy and trying to assess whether inflation is going up or going down and what the future industrial output is likely to be, I also specifically look at the charts. And when it comes to gold and silver, I'd say that what you want to generally watch is that both of these metals tend to hold very true to their 10-day and 50-day moving average. And what I mean by that is when the price of gold or silver is above its 10-day moving average. That's like a two-week rolling moving average. When the price is above that 10-day moving average, it tends to stay above that average. But when it drops down and falls below that average, then it tends to stay in decline and struggles to get back up above it. So watch the 10-day moving average on both gold and silver, and then watch that 10-day average as it relates to the 50-day moving average of the price of either gold or silver. Once again, when that 10-day average moves down below the 50-day moving average, the price tends to stay in decline. Incidentally, right now, the 10-day moving average on gold is just slightly above the 50-day moving average. That's just something I wanted to make you aware of, but that's what I tend to do when I'm trading gold or silver. In any case, though, Mike, I have to tell you right now, I'm shorting gold. I think gold has gotten a little bit overextended and overbought. To my point earlier about the difference between investing and trading, my short position in gold right now is a pure speculation. I believe that gold is coming up against a long-term resistance of its four-year moving average, and so I'm betting that it's not going to be able to get above that resistance and that we'll see a pullback into the 1100s. But right now, that position is actually going against me. I'm down about 5%, so take my advice for what it's worth. Hey, Mike, one other thing. I watch the relationship very closely between oil and gold. That ratio has been out of balance for quite some time. And the million-dollar question right now is, is gold too expensive or is oil too cheap? Well, whoever can figure that out, I'm sure will make a lot of money. I'm going to provide Jack with a link to a podcast episode that I did back in October of 2014. Now, I say some pretty controversial things in that episode. I even state that I believe that gold could drop down as low as $900 an ounce. So if you'd like to get a contrarian view on gold, you might want to check out that episode. In any case, thanks for the question. If you'd like to hear more about my opinions on general wealth building principles or what's going on in the stock market, please check out my podcast, The Wealth Setting Podcast. For the Expert Counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth.
1: Okay, I do have uh, a little bit of follow-up on that one. First, I do have a link to John's uh, podcast on gold uh, in today's show notes, and I, I tend to agree with John here. And I think it's important that we think about something here with what John just told you and what you often hear from pundits that just want to sell you gold and or silver. It is almost always the case that they use the spread to justify buying one or the other. Um and never point out that the spread could be because one's overvalued. And that's where we get simplistic in our thinking. Well, since gold is separated uh, from silver uh, by a delta that exceeds uh, what it it traditionally does, silver must be undervalued. That is one possibility for that separation, just like John ended with, is, is gold overvalued or is oil undervalued, right? So... There always is the contrarian viewpoint that the reason that, that the separation exists is because the, the, the one that has the higher level on a delta is actually overvalued. And, and that's something we need to think about so that we are using critical thinking in our analysis. I don't see uh, silver or gold making any big moves right now. I, I, I don't have any money on either side of silver or gold right now other than physical metal that I keep for long term. Uh, I don't mess with ETFs unless I'm, I, I have a, a very good reason, especially here. Now, John mentioned Roth IRAs and IRAs. Okay, This is the purpose of ETFs and silver and gold to me. Uh, when somebody starts talking about putting physical metal in an IRA, it gives me cringes. It, you're just taking the most anonymous wealth you could ever have and making it public. That's where I, I see these being most useful. Uh, or you know you're in a situation where you know you have an opportunity, and you go into an ETF for a short-term gain on a profitable trade. That's where these ETFs make sense to me. Every place else, I'd rather have my hand on the metal. And I think John would completely agree with that. Okay, next question is for Gary Collins. For people trying to live primal paleo that say, "Hey, I miss corn like cornbread and corn chips. What do I do?" What'd say you, Gary?
4: Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and I have a very popular question that I get asked quite a bit, and it's one I had in the beginning of my ventures into the Primal Paleo world, and that is having a healthy alternative, or finding a healthy alternative, to corn chips and uh, cornbread or corn-based snack food items, basically, and um, Bobby loves cornbread and tortilla chips. And since corn is technically a pseudo grain in the paleo primal world, it is a no no far as, uh, you know, it's, it's classified because it's technically kind of in between. It can be a, it could be a seed or a grain. It's kind of, corn's an odd one. And there's been some battles in the paleo world over that. But, uh, for me, they're just, I have not found anything that is like a tortilla chip or cornbread. I've looked at the alternatives. Um, I've eaten a bunch of them. So there, there was some store-bought stuff that's come and gone. There's recipes all over the internet of the supposed paleo new experts. So they are little dumb cookbooks that make you fat. But uh, I've tried them. They, they're just. It's not the same. It's not even close, actually, because a lot of them are made out of uh, flaxseed, uh, coconut flour, and almond flour. And when you combine those, even if you spice it up, the texture's different, the flavor's different. So there's no real good way with that. But some substitutes you can use that, even though they don't taste the same, what I have done, I I bake my own uh, bread. It's kind of a flat bread made from almond flour. Now, is it like cornbread? No. But... It, at least it's a, a, a bread alternative. Um, coconut wraps are great for people who are looking for a gluten-free, uh, grain-free alternative. Uh, you can find them at most stores. There's a couple of different brands out there. Uh, I will say that they do not taste like tortillas. They they taste like coconut. They're sweet, but they are a wrap, and it allows you to make, make a burrito or a small sandwich wrap. As uh, far as... Some other things, you guys also know that I don't preach this whole 100% compliance all the time. Now, if you like tortilla chips or you like cornbread or some, you know, flour tortillas here and there, even though that's not corn, something different, but uh, every once in a while it's not going to kill you, you know, it, but with the non GMO like Bobby's talking about and that gets tricky because 95% plus of corn in the U S grown up is, is GMO. It's genetically modified and causes a whole host of digestive issues. Um, so I would be careful only obviously get USDA organic non GMO verified, but here's the thing that is not even perfect. They have tested some of these foods that claim to be non GMO organic and find out that they are not. So with that, you gotta take it with a grain of salt. Uh, I do. Uh, every once in a while, I have some, uh, organic, um, cornmeal mix and I'll, I'll make my own cornbread every once in a while and, you know, corn chips. You know, if I'm at a party or a friend's place and I have some, it's, like I said, it's not gonna kill me. I usually, I, I really don't buy corn chips anymore. I haven't in quite, quite a long time. But those are some alternatives and, you know, when it comes to going paleo primal, going grain free, Uh, it's a little tricky, you know, there, there are some substitutes, but usually they are not close to what you're trying to replace them with. Um, you know, remember, you know, corn chips and, and cornbread, it's just very, very unique flavors and textures to corn that you're not going to be able to get with these grain-free substitutes. So I hope that helps. And if anyone ever finds products out there that they, they recommend definitely feel free to email me at contact at primal power method or include them, you know, at the end of the show here and let us know, cause I'm not all knowing there's a ton of products out there and people ask me all the time about certain things. And, you know, most time I'm all, you know, I've never heard of that. You know, there's tens of thousands of products, you know, out there that are manufactured. So I hope that helps. And, uh, you know, if you're going grain free, definitely do avoid corn because that is one of the, uh, the paleo primal rules. So, um, I hope, uh, that helps you out a little bit, Bobby. Thanks a lot.
1: I do have an option for you for chips, uh, both completely corn free and one that is half corn that's a lot closer to what you're looking for. It takes some work. It's not perfect, but the work will make you eat less. Uh, The freshness will make them taste good. The protein boost from the amaranth will make it more balanced. And by cutting it in half, you can have, you know, instead of having uh, 10 chips to get a certain amount of corn and say that's what you're going to have today, you could have 20 and still have the same amount of corn if you make the half and half. And basically what you do is you make amaranth tortillas. And to me, amaranth and quinoa are both seeds. They are not grains. They're not even pseudo grains. I don't know if Gary would agree with that or not. They're definitely, uh, you know, high fiber. They're gluten free. Uh, they're low fat. They're extremely high protein. Um, and to me, they make a lot more sense in our diet. So I'm going to give you a link in the show notes today where you can make amaranth tortillas on Bob's Red Mill's website. And what you do is you just simply get a really high quality, like heirloom quality, stone ground organic corn flour. And you mix it 50-50 with the amaranth flour and follow this recipe. And that will make a tortilla. the soft, flappy tortilla you do on like a a hot cast iron uh, griddle or pan. Then you get some good quality organic peanut oil. uh, Or you can use lard for this, organic lard. And you heat that up and you take your tortillas and cut them into quarters, just like little strangler corn chips and you very quickly fry them deep fry them at about 350 degrees and as soon as they start to crisp at all you get them out and drain them and before they're fully dry from the oil or the grease you hit them with a little bit of like you know good quality sea salt or kosher salt is it the same as a dorito no it's not is it the same as a you know a good quality corn chip from a mexican restaurant no is it good hell yeah it's good hell yeah it's good you could do that with the amaranth alone or you can do that with the 50-50 mix. And it is a bit of a pain in the butt, and it takes a while. And like I said, that's the, that's a big difference from sitting down and cracking open a giant bag and dumping them out in a bowl and start dipping them in guacamole or salsa or something like that. It makes you appreciate it more, therefore you eat less. And the protein from the amaranth is such a boost over the protein in the corn, they tend to like have more of a filling nature rather than that. So the problem with corn chips is they have that carb response when it's pure corn. That starch, immediately the mouth converts it to sugar, it gets mixed with a fat, and it keys in that primal instinct of high calories, high calories, eat it, gorge on it, gorge on it, winter's coming. That, that's a big part of the problem we have today, that we've made that type of food so abundant that we're triggering that reaction that is basically a survival reaction all the time. Okay, and our, our final question today I'm taking for myself. This question comes from Tim, and Tim says... Hey, Jack, I travel often, quite often by air travel, and I like to take fishing gear along with me. But checking an extra piece of baggage proves sometimes to be more expensive than just buying a cheap rod when I get there. I know you love to vacation in South Florida and that you go fishing every time you go. I probably fish more than I should when I'm there with my wife. I sh- should probably spend more time walking the beach, but he's right, I do fish a lot. So I bet you've come up with a good solution if you're traveling as a fisherman. I've looked into several options, but the better gear seems very expensive. I'm not trying to be cheap. I'd be willing to spend up to, say, $150. For a rod and reel combo, if I could find a good travel rod that's actually a good quality rod and a good reel to go with it that would balance well. Most of the places I go, I would be fishing for fish that are a couple pounds to maybe up to, at most, 6 to 8 pounds if I were lucky, 10. Um, what type of, uh, equipment do you use? And is it realistic to find something good quality that is travel capable at about $150 or less? Uh, the answer is absolutely yes, it is. And he's right. Like, you know, you can get like a good medium action, not good long term, but good, good enough medium action fishing rod sometimes at places like Academy Sports and Outdoors for like, they have these red ones that are like nine to ten dollars. Seriously. And they're not terrible rods. And at one time, what I actually used to do is I would uh, just go to Florida. I'd bring my reels and all my tackle, and we would just swing by a cheap sporting goods store, and I would buy, like, two uh, medium light action rods uh, for, like, 20 bucks. And then I would fish with them, and I would find kids or something on the beach that were there. And I would say, you're going to have to get your own reel, but if your mom says or your dad says you can have this, you can have this fishing rod. I'm leaving tomorrow. And I would give them away. And if I couldn't find anybody to give them to, I'd just leave them on the porch, and you might think, well, that's crazy. That's twenty bucks. Yeah, but it was like forty bucks to ship the big rod case as, uh, you know, a baggage item when they started dinging you for all of these things. So I didn't want to spend that money either. And I went out and I searched for, you know, what would work best for me. And um, I came up with a rod uh, from Browning called the Safari Series. And I actually, I'm, I'm videotaping this segment for YouTube. So if you go look at the YouTube segment of this later on today, or if you're on YouTube right now, I actually have some props for this. I actually have those, uh, th- the things that I'm going to use here with me. Um, first, oh, where has it gone? This is the uh, tube. So the, this comes in, the Browning Safari rod that I have is a four-piece rod. It comes in a uh, brown tube that's two feet long. And it breaks down into four pieces. Uh, the one I have is a, is a medium uh, medium light fast action, which means it 's one of the lighter rods, and it would be very good for what you know you 're asking about. Um, there are rods that are three piece rods that are uh, like a medium action instead of a fast action. People that are after a larger fish, you know those medium actions would probably be better. Uh, so I do like that it comes though in a two foot tube. It's a very rugged tube and in the standard roller bag. I have no trouble just taking this and putting this in to my suitcase and then, you know, that fits just fine. The rod itself is a very well made rod with Fuji guides. It's cork handled. Um, It is a spinning rod like was asked about And I actually prefer For kind of universal gear Where I never know where I'm going to go I prefer a spinning rod to a casting rod Meaning you have the open face spinning reel Versus your your closed face or bait casting rod Where the reel sits on top While you're fishing the reel hangs to the bottom Um, Again the rod breaks down into four pieces And uh, they're all a little under two feet So they fit into the tube just fine And it works out really really well It comes with uh, a little uh, vinyl bag. That Each section of the rod has its own tube. That folds in, it rolls up, so it slips into that tube, and it stays very, very well protected. And uh, that's a big part of the selling point as to why I bought it. Now... The only place I know to get this rod is from Bass Pro Shops. And reading the reviews on Bass Pro Shops, there is one person there that said they went to Belize and they were fishing uh, for Peacock, Bass, and Snook and had one of these rods break on them. And uh, Bass Pro makes an extreme travel rod series that costs the same price, but they do not make it in a four-piece fast action. Uh, They make it a three-piece action. The tubes for all the Bass Pro ones are 34 inches. Browning also makes uh, three-piece versions that are medium action instead of fast action. So they're a little bit stiffer. Those are, again, in three pieces. I would imagine the Brownings in the three pieces are pretty much probably equivalent to the uh, Bass Pro brand. But they cost the same, so I'll have a link in the notes to both of those rods um, but even the, I think there is a four-piece version of the Bass Pro rod. They just decided to, you know, go uniform on a single tube, so that the only downside with the the uh, the medium actions from Browning or all the Bass Pro rods is that they're 34 versus 24 inches, a so 10 inch longer tube. So you want to make sure that whatever your suitcase or whatever you're packing, that that would go into that it's going to fit. Let me say, these are all great for like behind the truck, uh, truck seat too, because you're not gonna have a rod get all tangled up and jacked up. You, so, wherever you are, all of a sudden you get an opportunity to fish, you can pull it out, keep a small uh, assortment of tackle with you in, in small uh, lock boxes or, you know, uh, tackle boxes, and you're ready to go anywhere and every place you show up. So, that's what I would recommend from a rod standpoint. From a real standpoint, if you're gonna go with, with what I went with, which again is a six foot, six inch, four piece, and I think this is like the best overall, unless you're getting in a really big fish. And I'll talk about some of the fish I've landed with it, but it's a six foot six, four piece, fast action, medium light, uh, Browning Safari. That's the rod that I have, uh, that I have actually two of them. And, uh, I like them enough that I have two of them. The reel that I found that I like to pair with it the best is a Mitchell 300, um, these have been made forever, and I'm not going to say they are as great as they were back when they used to make them in France in the 1950s and 60s. Um, but that's how long they've been around. They're actually older than I. I think they've been made since the 30s in France. And I actually have many of the old-style Mitchell 300s. You can find them on eBay, um, and they're usually kind of in kind of bad repair. But as long as they're functioning, they're pretty easy to take apart, clean up, uh, Wash out, uh, re-grease, re-lube, and put back together and make them as good as new. And uh, I check eBay every once in a while, and I'll pick up two or three of them and refurbish them. And I have a pretty big box of them uh, that I'm just keeping set aside because I know one day they're not going to be so easy to find anymore. That said, the modern Mitchell... So anyway, the Rod sells for about 80 bucks, and the Mitchell 300 sells for about $40. i will have a link to where you can get the Mitchell on Amazon. But again, you have to get... The Browning rod or the Bass Pro rods at Bass Pro Shops—the only place I've ever found them. Um, the Mitchell Modern Mitchell 300s are great reels. I've used them a, a lot. They balance perfectly with the particular rod that I just uh, mentioned—that six foot six, uh, fast action. Again, fast action means it's light, very very sensitive. Now, what kind of fish can you catch on that rod without it shattering and breaking or whatever? Uh, last time I was in Florida, I was catching um, black tip shark pups. That were about 28 inches they were like clones every single one was the same on that rod with a small steel leader so because they cause they've got teeth man they'll cut that line but you know you're looking at a fish that's that's about eight and a half nine pounds and black tip sharks are very hard fighting strong fish catching them in the surf and I was able to land every single one of them with no damage to the rod whatsoever. I've also caught snook up to about 30 inches. I don't know exactly how much they weighed because when I catch snook in the surf, I immediately release them. They're kind of a special fish to me. I don't want any harm to come from them. But I can tell you, they're a tough fish. And it takes finesse to land a snook that's 30 inches long, on a light action rod, you know, running like 10 to 12 pound monofilament line, not special braided line or anything like that. So whatever you're fishing with, if you're fishing with something that's going to break that rod, I think you're kind of exceeding the class of the rod. And I haven't used the heavier uh, taper, heavier action uh, Brownings, but I would imagine looking at them, I think Browning is OEMing the ones for Bass Pro anyway, but you're free to take your pick from them. They both look like really good rods. They have really great sensitivity. As another option for your reel, uh, the other reel that I found that you're not gonna go spend a fortune on is, uh, the Cardinal, uh, by Abu Garcia. This is the Cardinal SX40. And, uh, the both of those reels are perfect for what I like to do. I like to fish. I, I think this is gonna fit right in with, you know, the, the person asking the question, kind of that quality uh, class of fish. I like to fish for fish that are, you know, uh, as big as I can get. On rods that are kind of as lightweight and as, gives as much fight as possible and as much sport as possible, and both of these reels balance really well in that you know kind of six foot to seven foot light action to medium light action rod. They cast beautifully. Uh, they they hold up well. They don't cost a dear lord's fortune. If you saltwater fish like I do with them and you end up screwing up and getting them kind of in the water and you you can ruin a reel. I mean, immediately when you're done fishing in saltwater, you want to completely rinse these out with fresh water. And when you're done with your trip, you want to you know, you know, oil them and give them a good hot water bath and give them a good oiling and greasing and service them. But if you do forget, you get tired, you get one all jacked up and the saltwater just destroys it, you're out 40 bucks, not, you know, two, three hundred bucks. Um, and, They've done everything I've ever asked for on both of these reels. I'm really, really fond of them. And again, you might want to consider checking out eBay. And you want to look for, you know, all parts included and functioning when you buy one of these, because some of them are really bad. The old school uh, Mitchell 300s. My father uh, was the one that turned me on to these reels, and my grandfather. And you could tell they kind of had a reverence for them. And I found out eventually talking to them as they got older. Well, that's because back when I, you know when your dad was a kid, as my dad and grandfather are talking now. When you wanted a Mitchell, you saved up for it. Like this was not equivalent to forty bucks today. These were like forty bucks in 1950. And uh, today you can get them for under twenty bucks. Again, they need some work, uh, but I have a bunch of them and they still work. And they are a they are a great little antique that there's still an opportunity on uh but that's my recommendations for you with that and uh I hope that you uh you, you you can use those recommendations well for those of you that are not looking for a travel rod I still recommend the Mitchell 300 and the uh the Garcia Cardinal uh SX40 is great reels for that class of rod and with that wrapped up we have uh, wound up another week want to remind you as I said I will have links to uh the equipment that I mentioned today on Bass Pro Shops and Amazon, the two reels on Amazon. If you're going to shop on Amazon for those or anything else and you want to support my show, just go to TSPAZ or tspaz.com, and uh, when you shop on Amazon, you'll be at the same place, you'll spend the same money, you won't do anything different, except type in one less letter, and you will help support the work we do here at the Survival Co- uh, Podcast. On top of that, remember, get by com over the weekend and join the club, set up a group, uh, get talking to people, talk to folks that you already know, your friends that are gun enthusiasts, form a club, let's make this a real thing. I look forward to connecting with you guys online, and I'll started up the North Central Group, and hopefully I'll be connecting with some of you offline. We can find some good locations to do some camping trips and some shoots and start creating tradition, value, and uh, heritage with the Second Amendment in mind and building stronger communities with granddaddysgun.com. Next up, if you want to support this show and you'd like to get discounts on all kinds of stuff that we talk about here all the time for that self-sufficient lifestyle, just go to the com and click on Members and become a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. Uh it's a great way to help support what we're doing but it's a way that if you do it you will get back your money many times over over the year. If you're gardening, if you're into guns, if you're into reloading ammunition, uh, if you're into long-term storage food, if you're into prepping, if you're into any of the stuff we talk about, herbal medicines, you name it, we've got it there and even cool stuff just uh for maybe even the reluctant spouse like ego Sense and some really cool uh different options with discounts on handmade soaps and other things like that. Check us out today. Go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and you'll see a list of all of the companies that we provide discounts to you for. We can even get you discounts on silver. We heard about investing in silver ETFs today. How about physical silver? Great discounts with JM Bullion as a member of the Support Brigade. Again, it's a discount membership that really does pay for itself. Imagine if AAA actually had discounts that actually mattered. That's what the Survival Podcast MSB is like And you guys that are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, all of you do qualify for a discount. Email me, Jack at the Survival Podcast, with service discount in the subject line, and I will get back to you with that code. Please do that before, not after you join. With that, I want to uh, tell you about the song of the day. The song of the day, since the last question was on fishing, is by Trace Atkins. It's called Just Fishing. It's about a daddy taking this little girl fishing, and she thinks they're just fishing. But what they're doing is they're building memories and they're building a bond. And a little girl, if you listen to the song, ain't really doing much fishing. She's doing a lot of squirming around and talking and just spending time with Dad, and that's a good thing. i like to let you know, um, I just did something kind of cool this week. I, I, for the first time, caught a fish out of a pond I owned. Yeah, it was kind of cool. Even though it's a little bitty pond and they're just a little catfish and they've only gotten up to about 10 inches now. Um, I went down there with, um, a rod to kind of get an idea of, well, how, how big of these fish got? Cause we put them in as little bitty fingerlings, uh, in this November and, you know, they've, they've tripled in size and they're doing good and they look healthy. But the real reason I did it was my grandson has been wanting to go fishing. He wants to go fishing. He wants to go fishing. And I get a feeling he's going to be a lot like the little girl in this song and not doing a lot of fishing and, Going out to the lake and and going through a lot of stuff to get it done, uh, for maybe 15 minutes might be kind of a, a stretch. When I have a pond right here, so would the fish cooperate? Are they big enough to catch on a rod and reel yet? So I go down there, and I catch about three or four little channel catfish and go, yeah, they're healthy. And the next day he comes over to spend the night with us, and I took him down there and he caught his first two fish. He was pretty damn excited. He was he was the little girl in this song until we caught the first fish. Once we caught the first fish, I figured he was tired and he wanted to leave because even though they're just in this little you know, this little farm pond and they're fed every day, they just weren't in the mood to eat. I mean, that night when I fed them their, their food ration, they, they ate like two, two fish came up and ate. I was like, something's wrong with them. Uh, but they just weren't real active. But we caught one. And I thought he, he was like, I need to go eat. I need to leave. I need to do this. We caught one. And boy, he wanted to catch a second one. And we stuck it out and we caught two fish. And he was really excited. So this song fits in with that kind of thing, is building those bonds with your kids, with your grandkids and your youngins. It also fits in really well with what we're doing with Granddaddy's Gun Club. I can see fishing being part of campouts. I can see a lot of other things, a skill development and and what have you, and cooking and all kinds of things that are bonding experiences being part of Granddaddy's Gun Club. Think about that. Consider joining over the weekend. And if you have young ones in your life, consider taking them fishing. And when you do... And when they're smacking bugs or filling their shoe with dirt or telling you about whatever and not paying attention to the cork, think of this song. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
0: rod real, She's doing almost everything but sitting still Talking about her ballet shoes and training wheels and her kittens And she thinks we're just fishing I say daddy loves your baby one more time says, I know, I think I've got a bite And all this laughing, crying, smiling, dying here inside what I call living She thinks we're just fishing on the riverside Throwing back what we could fry Drowning worms and killing time Nothing too ambitious She ain't even thinking about going on right now But I guarantee this memory's a big one And she thinks we're just fishing She's already pretty like her mama is Gonna drive the boys all crazy Give her daddy fits And I better do this every chance I get Cause time is ticking Yeah it is And she thinks we're just fishing on the riverside Throwing back what we could fry, Drowning worms and killing time Nothing too ambitious She ain't even thinking about What's really going on right now But I guarantee this memory's a bigger And she thinks we're just fishing We're just fishing, yeah, oh, she thinks we're just fishing.